Um, and peace journalism um, is, is defined as journalism which creates opportunities for readers and audiences to consider and value non-violent responses to conflict. Uh, and I mean by that not just conflict that takes the form of war, not just uh, armed conflict, but conflicts of all kinds. That sounds promising, thank you. Um, and the reason, uh, um, what I'm going to be telling you about chiefly is, is research that I've been doing with my, my partner Annabelle McGoldrick um, over recent years, um, which is about um, the effects of peace journalism. And before I talk about that, perhaps I ought to address one or two of the theoretical points that Na'el raised. Um, I think you were referring to the thesis of selective avoidance. Yeah. And selective avoidance is the title of an influential article, came out a few years ago by two American communications specialists, uh, which they say is a phenomenon that heralds a new era of minimal media effects. And what they're saying is that um, now with internet access, uh, and you could say in particular with social media, um, people are in a position only to expose themselves to media which reiterate what they already think of as the answers. And that therefore looking to media to prompt people to question their beliefs or to question their assumptions may be a bit of a stretch. Um, I should say that in that respect I'm probably something of a conservative. Um, I uh, am more persuaded uh, by the copious number of, of articles that have come out since which have questioned this thesis of selective avoidance. Um, and if anything, my interpretation of some of Na'el's findings is such as to bear out my scepticism towards that thesis. Uh, in particular, um, the preponderance of television among Egyptians as a source for news. And television is by its nature, of course, a broadcasting medium. That is to say, it's, it's from one to many, as distinct from social media, which are many to many. Um, I think there is uh, some significance in the fact that um, the political traction or the political agency generated through social media in um, the uprising in Egypt um, was effective only when it attained a kind of crossover into mainstream media. Indeed, uh, the Avaz uh, organization, for example, um, devoted a lot of its energy, a lot of its attention at the time uh, to um, gathering and um, uh, packaging uh, material that originated in social media in forms which were suitable for Avars to then do what they, they, they did next, which was to present it and commend it to broadcasters, the BBC International, uh, CNN International, um, and of course Al Jazeera, and, and, it's, and it's when it attained that crossover, I think it's, it's, uh, there, is, there is reason to believe that it then attained its political agency, it became influential in the public sphere. Um, and um, therefore my view is that there is some uh, remaining, some, some considerable remaining um, mileage or, or, or point to um, wondering how the news could be presented in the medium of television in particular in a different way, in a different way. And in doing that, what I'm, I'm um, picking up on, what I'm responding to, um, is uh, a, a, an even better known uh, article from, from a previous era. Um, it's, uh, in fact, it's, it was published in 1965, which makes it as old as me, uh, called The Structure of Foreign News. The Structure of Foreign News by Marie Holm Baruga and Johann Gautung. Gautung 
is the, the chief ideas giver of, of peace research. Now, um, in the structure of foreign news, Gauteng and Ruger um, took up the familiar argument of the journalist as a gatekeeper. Um, if the remit of journalism is, is to report the facts, then it has to grapple uh, with the, the phenomenon that um, the facts are, are a much bigger category than the news. Not all the facts can be fitted in. And communications research had already produced the familiar image of, of the journalist as gatekeeper, letting some through and keeping others out. Um, Gauteng and Ruger uh, were among the first to show that that process does not take place at random. It's not uh, merely that there is a kind of mismatch in size between those two categories. The kind of facts that tend to get let through the gate are, are always or usually the same kinds of facts, and the, and the ones that get left out are also usually the same. And the, um, the criteria are dictated by the economic structure of the news. Uh, in particular, one of the chief criteria is frequency. Frequency, which means that there is a bias in news about conflicts uh, any other kind of news, but in, in news about conflicts they were discussing, um, in favour of events that can be shown to have a, an identifiable beginning, middle and end, all of which happen in the interval between deadlines. And in the example they give in the, in the article, um, a soldier can be shot, fall on the battlefield and die, all in that interval between deadlines or between editions, therefore that's a news story. But of course, over time, a pattern supervenes in which important aspects of that conflict are therefore omitted. Um, how did the conflict give rise to the battle in the first place? Um, how did the parties involved come to see it in that way? Who held sway on either side with the argument that this should be conceived as the kind of conflict to lead to a war? All these kinds of factors tend to get missed out, along with, therefore, alternative responses to the conflict. Um, it's, it's a familiar staple of research findings in conflict zones that there are always people who are working on peace uh, in various different ways, whether it be uh, bridge building initiatives, um, circulating ideas and proposals, uh, providing alternative livelihoods for young men who would otherwise enter the war, and so on and so forth. Um, but what is at stake, perhaps, is their visibility or otherwise and the news can bestow that visibility on them or it can withhold that visibility uh, and therefore um, it, it can strengthen them or weaken them uh, according to, to, to the way it does it. So therefore um, the sheer brute conventionality of news produces a list of characteristics which Galton called war journalism. War journalism. This is a simplified version of, of his original um, dyadic table um, which is, uh, there he is with, with our book, a little bit of egotism there, sorry, and one of my students who's a, a war reporter from the Philippines also doing her PhD. Um, and in simplified form, um, the dominant form of war, war journalism, therefore, is, is war and violence orientated, propaganda orientated, elite orientated, and victory orientated. And on the other hand, uh, therefore, there has to be some kind of remedial form, some kind of challenge to this, some kind of policy response to this, and the policy response he called peace journalism, which would therefore be peace and conflict orientated, truth orientated, people orientated, and solution orientated. So that's the basic dyad of the peace journalism model. And um, it, it attained a, a life of its own. It, it, it became a thing, um, largely through training and development. 
in, in a whole host of countries. That's uh, the top illustration is uh, an Indonesian radio journalist on a, on a peace journalism field trip in the city of Palu. Uh, the middle one is a peace journalism workshop in the Philippines. And uh, that young woman, young woman at the bottom, uh, Vanessa Bassel, is there launching the Media Association for Peace in Lebanon. So these are just some of the places in which peace journalism has been instantiated and taken hold uh, for, for different reasons at different times. Now, once it had been established as a thing, it then became the subject of scholarly attention. And in those um, uh, articles, the main um, mode of analysis was to use the peace journalism model as a way to analyse the content of media, the manifest content of media, I should say, uh, the bit that's on the screen or the bit that's on the page. And um, this uh, list uh, was, was drawn up by um, an Israeli academic, Dov Shinar, who studied, who studied um, an overview of these scholarly articles in which the peace journalism model had been used to derive evaluative criteria for content analysis. And writers who did that, Dov Shinar said, what do they mean by peace journalism? Well, they mean journalism that does these things. It explores the backgrounds and contexts of conflict formation, gives the views of all rival parties. Okay, it may not be possible to give all rival parties, but it should be something beyond the familiar, a leader on both sides, he said, she said kind of pattern. Um, it, it makes space to hear from creative ideas for conflict resolution, peacemaking and peacekeeping. It exposes the lies, cover-up attempts and culprits on all sides, not just the other side. Um, it's, it's supposed to be an antidote to what we've been hearing so much on the radio recently. It's a variant of the great man theory of history. I've been hearing the bad man theory of conflict. The bad man theory of conflict. It's all President Putin's fault, you see. But that's supposed to be an antidote to that. And uh, does it give attention to peace um, stories and post-war developments? So when peace journalism moved into the academy, that was the form it tended to take. Now, what we did, therefore, in this study is, is to take that in as one of the methods and we used those five characteristics as a set of headings under which we then developed particular distinctions to suit particular stories in different places. So this is us gathering material in the Philippines. So what we did was we went to four countries, Australia, the Philippines, South Africa and Mexico. We took familiar stories from the television news agenda in all those countries about issues of conflict and we gathered new material to reversion them as peace journalism. And we then played the two versions to audiences and garnered their responses. So just let me go into, uh, for example, one of the um, uh, contexts in which we carried out this exercise, the fraught tale of political responses to asylum seekers in Australia. And um, what's happened over uh, the last, um, I suppose, dozen years or so is, is I would say there's been a, a securitization of politics in Australia which has operated as a political spectacle. Uh, in simple terms, Edelman's theory of political spectacle is, is misdirection. You know, don't Australians bother about the 83% of revenues from your mining boom which are disappearing overseas over here? No, 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 forget about that. That's not important. What's important is that we can take this boatload of asylum seekers who've come from Sri Lanka in fear of their lives and stick them on a, a, hell, a tropical hellish island instead of bringing them to Australia. That's what's important. So it's about misdirection. So the effect, as Edelman says, depends on psychological distancing. And you need an enemy onto which all these meanings can be loaded. And so therefore what you need is for that enemy or that other not to have any meanings of their own. 
the minute they start to feature or figure in representations like television news in their own right, then there is less room in them as a signifier to have all these kind of grievances put onto. So let me just try to uh, show you now um, the, the peace journalism version we did in response to this phenomenon of a story about asylum seekers. Will you bear with me? Do we have volume? He asks himself. Yes, we do. Thank you. 
So that's a, a, a reversioned um, version of a peace journalism version of the um, asylum story. And um, I say that because it's, it exhibits those characteristics. That is to say, it gives some background and context. Um, it, it transcends the mere kind of um, uh, ritualistic exchange of um, perspectives from the government and the opposition. Uh, so it gives the, the voices of all sides, or more than two sides at least, um, and the most significant uh, change, or the most significant deviation from the norm, if you like, was the, the interview we shot between the reporter, Oscar Sabakti, and Mr Jafari. Because, you see, in the vast majority of cases, when um, there is a story about asylum seekers, the curious thing is that asylum seekers themselves are entirely absent. And that's what enables this psychological distancing. So we took that action to dispel, or if you like, to close the gap in that psychological distancing, and we used various means to garner audience responses, both emotional responses through self-reporting questionnaires, and also more narrative responses and analytical and cognitive responses through uh, getting people to, to write down their reflections in a thought listing protocol, and also in focus group discussions. And what happened with the second version, the, the peace journalism version of the asylum story, is this, that the standard version left people feeling more hopeless than they started with, and they had higher increases in astonishment, revulsion, contempt, distaste, anger, disdain, scorn, and downheartedness. These are the emotions that are being mobilized and harnessed behind the political agenda for the securitization of contested issues in the Australian public sphere, right? Whereas the viewers of the adjusted version that you've just seen, they found their hopelessness decreased and they had more empathy. In some respects, they also had more anger. And their anger, it became clear in their narrative responses, their cognitive responses, was directed towards the system. It wasn't buying into the partisan exchange between the government and the opposition. It was the anger at the politicization of the system for handling asylum claims and the belief that something more constructive should be done about it. So in short, what we showed there was that by adjusting the content of news, within reach of the idiom and range of journalism as it is presently practiced, one could um, create a form of representation that would contribute to a very different symbolic context for the mediation and exchange of these issues in the Australian public sphere. And by being within reach of the idiom and range, we create, therefore, a potential reform agenda um, which can be commended to journalists and people who are interested in the news and feel they have a stake in the news as something which should be spread. Uh, and that's the next stage. Uh, we're trying to find out now um, if it is spread, how far is it possible for journalists to adjust their reporting. Uh, and, of course, like all good research, it leaves that question open for further research. But that's what's going on now. Thank you.